How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. You may not have noticed this, and God bless you if you haven't, but, uh, Lately, I've been having trouble coming up with things to talk about in these little intros. I think part of the problem is that ever since I noticed a few months ago that Corey seems to freeze up when I ask him, how's it going? I've been trying to come up with different questions to ask him in that part of the show. And I think a lot of what we end up talking about there is stuff that previously I would have been talking about in the intro. And so now I got to think of two topics of conversation worthy of small talk in a week? Who am I, French literary theorist and essayist Roland Barthes? Which brings us to today's intro. See, I got a bunch of little notebooks that I leave lying around the house. And if I think of something that I think I might want to talk about in one of these, I try to write it down. And this week, I had a couple of different entries on those notebooks, but I couldn't quite connect the dots on them. So I thought it might be a fun game for you listeners to make your own introductory rambles out of the raw ingredients that I'm about to give you. So, as I said, had a couple of possible things that I tried workshopping and just wasn't quite able to make jokes out of, but why don't you make your own jokes and I'm sure they'll be great. Here's the first one. French post-structuralist philosopher and literary essayist uh, Roland Barthes, who I mentioned earlier, probably best known for La Morte d'Auteur, or Death of the Author Theory, an essay that he wrote, has a name that sounds a lot like Barth, the gross chef from the Canadian television sketch comedy show You Can't Do That on Television. So, Barth's is the notable and influential essayist, and Barth is the cook who puts his cigarettes out on hamburgers and says, I heard that. There's a joke there somewhere. I couldn't figure out what it is but I bet you can, because you're real smart. So, one thing that I had written down was, Barth's sounds like Barth. The other thing that I had written down was, Tom's of Maine does not equal Tom of Finland. Because sometimes I mix up which one makes the gross toothpaste and which one makes the influential, hyper-masculine, homoerotic fetish art. I feel like that toothpaste is gross enough that it's probably somebody's fetish. So there, there's a little bit of a joke there. You can elaborate on that if you want. So, there is your list of ingredients. Make a delicious uh, rambling joke souffle out of them, if you will. Bon appetit. Now, without any further ado, 
Let's uh do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tui, and it's a sonnet. Steve, be not proud, though some have called thee, Sorcerer Supreme, for thou art still flawed. For those whom thou thinkest behemoths o'erawed can smash poor Steve, and yet thou canst smash me. From ghosts of flame which by thy watching see much pleasure, but know there is no future, with Namor, Banner, and Silver Surfer, which spares the earth and leaves blameless thee. Thou art fool to fate, elves, and editor's pen. All defenders bow to shooter named Jim. Hawkeye, Tanya, Black Knight, and Henry Pym have suffered your same fate. Why swell'st thou then? The old team is gone. We know they'll be missed. So Steve's team no more in this synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Devin. New Defenders number 127, January 1984. And the first story in this comic is a short two-page story to commemorate Assistant Editor Month, which is something I'll talk about a little more in the conversation with Corey in a little bit. Dreams of Glory. Written by Anne Nascenti. Drotted by Marie Severin. Inkted by Marie Severin. Colorded by Marie Severin. I think lettered by Marie Severin, but I'm not sure. And edited by Anne Nascenti. Defensive lineup. Super editor. And tiny little caricature representations of Beast, Valkyrie, and Angel. It's assistant editor month at Marvel Comics. The editors are all gone, so the assistant editors are in charge. Normally mild-mannered assistant editor Anne Nascenti closes the door to her office and transforms into the confident, assertive decision-maker, Super Editor. Several of the superheroic characters in the Marvel Universe voice their concerns to her about the editorial decisions that have been made which affect their lives, but Super Editor tells them to can it, because she has bigger fish to fry. She whips out a ray gun and tells a bunch of B-list heroes that she's going to blow them away to make room for a new line of comics that she's launching. Then she hops on the phone and starts wheeling and dealing, raising artist rates and hiring Stephen King to write a comic book. A bunch of freelance artists and writers approach her desk with various excuses as to why their books are late, but Super Editor reads them the proverbial riot act, telling them that if they can't meet their deadlines, they're fired. This seems to work. Having fixed all the problems at Marvel, both artistic and financial, Super Editor congratulates herself on a job well done. Then production manager Danny Crespi knocks on her door to inform her that there are some new problems with scheduling and office supplies. Overwhelmed by the mundanity of these issues, Super Editor reverts back to mild-mannered Anne Nascenti and gets back to work. Then we get the main story in this comic. Cloud Hidden. Written by J.M. DeMatteis. Laid out by Sal Buscema. Drotted and inkted by Alan Cooperberg. Letterded by Janice Chiang. Colorded by Paul Beckton. And edited by Anne Nascenti. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie. Gargoyle. Beast. Iceman. Angel. Moon Dragon, and 
Cloud. Previously in the Defenders. Some extra-dimensional space weirdos told Doctor Strange, the Hulk, Namor, and the Silver Surfer that they could never be Defenders again, or else the universe would explode, or at the very least, we would get more issues featuring Elf with a Gun. Not wanting to risk either of these catastrophic eventualities, the OG Defenders retired, leaving Beast free to assemble a team of new Defenders that operated less like a blimp and more like a Zeppelin in that it would have at least a nominally semi-rigid internal structure. During an early unsuccessful recruiting drive, the gang ran afoul of a clandestine cadre of crumbums called the Secret Empire. These secretive scumbags were a rogue sect of fascists, once helmed by President Richard Nixon. Their anonymous new leader sent a trio of super-powered women, respectively named Cloud, Seraph, and Harridan, to kidnap the android hero, The Vision. The youngest of these malefactors, Cloud, a 17-year-old who could turn herself into a cloud, expressed some concerns about this purported malfeasance and did her best to mitigate the damage caused by the senior member of her cohort. Due in part to this dissension, the new defenders managed to thwart the abduction and turned the would-be robo-nappers over to the authorities. Hooray! Or not so hooray, because within weeks, the Secret Empire's agents within the government managed to free the tempestuous triad and return them to the clutches of their evil overlords. Gadzooks! Is Cloud's conflicted conscience a sign that her criminal career has run its course? Will the new leader of the Secret Empire prove to be as evil as his presidential predecessor? And will Super Editor Anne Nascenti really get Stephen King to write a Marvel comic book? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Yup. No, but he is a crazed fascist madman who's taken over his own son's body and transplanted his mind into it, so it's closer than I would have thought. And... sort of. See... In 1985, Stephen King was one of 20 writers, including Alan Moore, Harlan Ellison, George R.R. R. Martin, and Anne Nascenti herself, who contributed to an X-Men comic called Heroes for Hope, a book that was written exquisite corpse style and whose proceeds benefited African famine relief. And Anne Nascenti was co-editor of that book. So, like I said, sort of. Stephen King did also write an adaptation of Lawnmower Man for Marvel, which Walt Simonson illustrated in 1981, but that was before Nascenti was working there. So, kind of irrelevant, but I do still want to read that comic. I think it was in an issue of Bizarre Adventure or something like that. Hi there. Editing as I go hub here in the present. I just took a second to look it up, and it is Bizarre Adventures number 29. Back to you, present hub. Cloud stumbles disoriented through an unspecified rural landscape. She's wearing her customary outfit, two wisps of vapor that barely cover her breasts and juncular region. Exhausted, the scantily clad super teen stumbles and falls to the ground. As she does so, two giant gold robots appear and attack her. Oh no! Cloud rallies herself. Transforming into a huge storm cloud, she blasts the two robots with bolts of lightning and flies off. The robots are momentarily stunned by this surprise flurry of offense, but they soon regain themselves and resume their pursuit. 
Meanwhile, in suburban Long Island, Iceman, Beast, Angel, and Angel's rad girlfriend Candy Southern, who is I believe making her first appearance in the pages of The Defenders, are having dinner at the home of Willie and Madeline Drake, Iceman's parents. The Drake's respective temperaments are like lines of longitude. They are all over the map. At first, they're in a great mood, because they're under the impression that their son Bobby is retired from superheroing and is going to be an accountant. Then Warren mentions that as a superhero, he has helped save the world on numerous occasions. Which is especially impressive seeing as Warren's only superpower is the ability to flap his pretty wings. Rather than congratulate Warren on how good at flapping he must be, Mr. Drake is like, You probably almost got killed, you stupid idiot! Sorry, Warren. I just miss the days when your teacher used to routinely brainwash us into thinking you were never in any danger whatsoever and weren't mutants. I always liked that guy. Is he still alive? Angel's like, This week? I think he's dead, but it's hard to keep track. He might just be in space having sex with his alien bird girlfriend. Mr. Drake is like, Yeah, that sounds about right. Fucking X-Men. Bobby decides this is as good a time as any to inform his parents that he has unretired from superheroics and is now a member of the new Defenders. The Drakes take this news about as well as you'd expect. Mrs. Drake passes out, while Willie Drake dumps hot coffee all over his crotch. Hooray! If you've listened to the Iceman episode we did a couple weeks ago, you'll get why Mr. Drake potentially scalding his genitals elicits this reaction from me. If you haven't, go listen to it. Sarah Sentry's on that episode, and she's a goddamn delight. Meanwhile, in the fancy replica castle in the Virginia Smokies that the Secret Empire uses as their home base, the anonymous leader known only as Number One decides that now is as good a time as any to stop being anonymous and dramatically reveal his secret identity. Standing from his nondescript office chair, the heretofore incognito mastermind whips off his purple robe and is like, My foolish enemies have no idea that their nemesis is none other than Professor Power. Oh no! Not THE Professor Power! Also, who the fuck is Professor Power? Turns out that Professor Anthony Power... Nothing? Okay, I guess you just get the dun-dun-duns for the first three. ...has been an advisor to several presidents. He's also a piece-of-shit fascist jerk, which, given U.S. foreign policy, makes a lot of sense. Turns out, turns out, Professor Power was the guy who helped his fellow fascist and Roman centurion enthusiast, August Masters, come up with his whole use telepaths to psychically murder everyone in the Soviet Union plan. A little while ago, Professor Power ran afoul of the X-Men and Spider-Man, which led to a kerfuffle, following which Power jammed his brain into the body of his son, who had been traumatized during his service in the Vietnam War. Ever since then, Professor Power has hated all X-Men and former X-Men, and wants to kill them all. 
As if commandeering his son's body and advising President Nixon wasn't enough to confirm Professor Power's villainous bona fides, he also wears bright orange and green battle armor. Doesn't get any more evil than contrasting secondary colors. Meanwhile, in the Defender's Brownstone, Moondragon has been kinda bummed ever since Odin jammed a magic snap bracelet onto her head that causes her great pain every time she uses her psychic powers. Since using telepathy gives her a headache, the follicle-free femme fatale decides to work on honing the space karate she learned from some monks on Saturn. She's in a room practicing her moves, when a voice from her doorway is like, Nice moves! It turns out that Gargoyle and Valkyrie have been silently watching her workout for quite some time. Moondragon is like, What? As in, what the fuck do you think you're doing intruding on my privacy? Gargoyle assumes that she means, what? As in, what did you say? I'm sorry, Gargoyle, but I didn't hear your totally appropriate comment about the workout I was doing alone in my room. Would you please repeat it? He responds, oh, I said nice moves. Because I saw your moves and I thought that they were nice. Moondragon is like, get the fuck out of my room and leave me alone. Valkyrie is like, well, you left your door open, so we figured you were actively seeking an audience and some feedback on your activities. Moondragon slams the door and is like, I was not. Val and Isaac go downstairs. Gargoyle is like, What's her problem? Val is like, well, Odin jammed a magic snap bracelet on her head to keep her from taking over the world and forced her to move in with us. I think it's making her testy. Although deep down, I can sense that she's a pretty cool lady. Gargoyle is like, well, when I first joined the team, I remember Patsy was a little salty with me about how I tried to sell her soul to demons and condemn her to eternal damnation in exchange for economic incentives for my beloved hometown. But I forgave her for being a little rude to me about that. Seems like Moondragon should learn to be magnanimous like I was. Upstairs, Moondragon is trying to calm down by meditating when she senses a strange presence approaching. Suddenly, her window shatters and the room is filled with a thick vapor. Valkyrie and Gargoyle hear the commotion and bust into the room. Val is like, I'm sorry to intrude on your privacy again, but we thought that... Oh, are you just hotboxing your room? My bad. Gargoyle is like, Nothing doing, Val. That doesn't smell like strong Jamaican incense. It smells like supervillain. It's that cloud lady who tried to robo-nap our buddy the Vision. I'll get her. Gargoyle starts flinging about his bolts of biomystical nonsense. Moondragon is like, Damn it, Gargoyle, knock that off. She's not a threat. Her words come a bit too late. One of the bolts KOs Cloud, who reverts to her human form. Cloud is like, did, did I reach the Defenders? Moondragon is like, Yes, you did, child. Now rest. We'll take care of you. Relieved, Cloud passes out. Gargoyle is like, But she's one of the baddies. That's why Azaster is so good. Moondragon is like, Isaac, if I want your opinion, I'll... Hmm, 
Actually, wanting your opinion is a hypothetical situation I'm unprepared for. I'm not sure what I would do. Extensive therapy, I'd imagine. Fortunately, the situation we currently find ourselves in is the significantly more common scenario in which I do not want your opinion. Cloud is confused and traumatized, but means us no harm. We'll let her rest and question her when she's recovered. Val and Gargoyle aren't totally convinced, but decide to go along with Moondragon's plan. Gargoyle is like, Fine, we'll play it your way, but I'd suggest you ladies use this time to hide any robots you might have lying around. As Cloud convalesces, the rest of the gang is heading home after a tense rest of the evening at the Drake residence. They were only allowed to leave after Bobby promised his parents that while he was crime-fighting, he would still be attending accounting school part-time, a compromise which neither side seemed entirely pleased with. As Candy drives, Warren and Bobby have identical thought bubbles about the fact that they are both horny for Moondragon. Creepy. I mean, I get it, but creepy. Beast is like, Hey, when we get home, do you guys want to watch the Gumby videotapes that I just got? Bobby is like, yeah, I want to watch Gumby. Slow-paced, sad, weird, creepy children's shows are my jam. Warren is like, you guys should act grown-up like me. Stop doing things that you think are fun and start pretending you're a businessman who earned his vast wealth and didn't just inherit it. Bobby is like, but we didn't inherit vast wealth. Warren is like, that's the spirit. The conversation is interrupted when Beast spots two giant golden robots flying overhead, making a beeline for the Defender's brownstone. The three heroes leap from the car and tell Candy to take care of Beast's puppy Sassafras and meet them later at Warren's penthouse. As they leave, Candy is like, all you guys need to grow the fuck up. Maybe I do too. Back at the brownstone, Cloud has finally woken up. Gargoyle is like, So, sorry about hitting you with my nonsense bolts and all that, but you did try to steal a robot friend. Cloud is like, No, no, I get it. I used to be one of the bad guys, but now I don't like the bad guys, and since they hate you, I figured you could be my new friends. Valkyrie is like, Yes, that makes sense. So, what's your deal? Cloud is like, I don't totally know what my deal is, and what I do know about what my deal is, I don't want to tell you. But part of my deal is that I'm really scared of the Secret Empire, and I want you to help me. Moondragon is like, And help you we shall, you poor dear. I saw some of your thoughts and can tell that the Secret Empire put you through a lot of messed up shit. Don't worry, they can't hurt you now. I'll protect you. Gargoyle thinks to himself, Huh. I guess Val was right about Moondragon after all. Deep down, she's an all right lady. Maybe I'll try saying nice to her again later. Val thinks to herself, I don't know why, but Moondragon being nice to this kid kind of creeps me the fuck out. Before Valkyrie gets a chance to explore these concerns any further, Iceman, Beast, Angel, and two giant gold robots crash through the wall. One of the robots smacks the shit out of Bobby. Moondragon tries to zap it with a brain blast, but her headband kicks in and gives her a migraine. Val is like, Ooh, uh-uh, Moondragon may be an asshole, but she's our asshole. Come on, gang! 
the gang does some teamwork stuff and manages to dismantle the two robots. Hooray! Everybody is like, Hooray! Well, almost everyone. Cloud is still looking pretty freaked out. Beast is like, Hey, mostly naked teen, why aren't you saying hooray like the rest of us? Cloud is like, Because those robots always hunt in groups of five. Oh. Valkyrie is like, You know, it seems like that's the sort of thing you might have informed us about before. Val doesn't get the chance to finish her sentence, because three more robots Kool-Aid Man through the wall and instantly knock out Iceman, Angel, Val, and Moondragon. Gargoyle and Beast last a little bit longer, but not much. Gargoyle is like, You robotic ne'er-do-wells had better... But unless he was going to end his ultimatum with the phrase, Shoot me with a laser and punch me in the back, the robots do not comply. Beast tries to sass his android adversaries, but the mechanical menaces punch him through the wall mid-sass. Cloud turns herself into vapors and tries to escape, but the robots have prepared for this eventuality. One of them zaps her unconscious with a blast of electricity, and another shoots a ray out of its forehead that renders the adolescent corporeal again. The final robot scoops up Cloud's body, and the three robotic reprobates head back to deliver their quarry to Professor Power. In the minutes that follow, the defeated and demoralized defenders struggle to regain first consciousness and then their bearings, yet again asking themselves the age-old question, What happened? To be continued. Joining me once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey? Yes? Describe your perfect hangover day. Um, you know, not unlike today. <laughs> I get to sleep in mm -hmm. until I'm ready to get out of bed. I don't have any heavy responsibilities, but I do have something that I should do, probably. You know, so otherwise I might just sit around feeling, no, not great. Plenty of... Hydration, plenty of caffeine, probably a burrito, feeling pretty good now, hmm. and then uh, go to a podcast. Okay. How about you? I think my perfect hangover day, and I kind of miss these because I don't drink as much as I used to, mm -hmm. but probably wake up a little bit on the earlier side, big greasy breakfast, mm -hmm. then go home, take a little nap. Ah. Post-breakfast nap. Decadent. Great way to do a hangover. Yep. Then, partake of some uh, strong Jamaican incense. Mm. And watch a couple of crappy action movies on TV. Yeah, checks out. And then maybe that evening have a couple of beverages. Yeah, hair of the dog. So what would you say is the worst part of a hangover day? Just feeling dumb. Yeah, the hangover, yeah. essentially, is the worst part of the hangover day. So, Corey, here's what I did yesterday. Huh. I had a hangover day. I scheduled it for myself without having a hangover. Oh. It was a game changer. Yeah? Yeah. Huh. It was a really, really nice day. Sounds relaxing. You should do it sometime. Yeah. So Treat it's the best part of it without the worst part. Yeah. I was, like I said, I was kind of nostalgic for like, oh man, I mean like being hungover kind of sucks, but I did always like the like forced relaxation and the, 
Well, I know I should probably be doing some stuff, but it's out of my hands because, you know, this hangover. I mean, I did do some things yesterday, too. I mowed the lawn. I replaced a uh, broken floor tile. But that is a lot. It seemed like a lot. It's two things, which is more than one. That's a lot. That's true. But still, overall, highly recommend Hangoverless Hangover Day. Mm. I set my alarm clock for 5 p.m. so I could make myself a cocktail. <laughs> it was great. <sighs> did you need the alarm or, or did you? Yeah, I was sucked into watching the kind of dumb action movies on TV and organizing some of the comic books from my garage. Oh, like nice. that, that was folded into the whole thing. So that was like technically accomplishing something, but it was something that I really loved doing and was pretty mindless. Mm. It was a great day. Sounds good. Yeah. I'm sorry, you're a little hungover today. It's quite all right. It was a friend's birthday last night, and um, it was fun to celebrate. Be outside and have a few beers. So it was good. Nice. Well, you ready to talk about this comic book? I suppose. All right. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? So... I think in the, the last episode that we recorded, you had mentioned that this was the assistant editor's issue, and I should be prepared for some weirdness. Mm-hmm. And there was an amusing like couple pages of pre-story stuff that, that was cute that we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. The comic itself didn't... I mean, we've read so many weird comics, this one did not stand out as such. No, and I think I maybe oversold it to you. Because I hadn't reread it and I was looking at the cover and it promises that it's going to be a weird one. It's got that little stamp in the corner that says, beware, it's assistant editor's month. Don't say we didn't warn you. And then the other one that's where the UPC code would be that says, warning, surgeons have generally determined that assistant editor's month is dangerous to your health. And so it seems like it's going to be a pretty wacky issue. And we start off with a really fun, in my opinion, two-page assistant editor almost comic strip mm -hmm. like it's a mad magazine style thing and i actually loved that i thought that was really fun but it is segregated from the rest of the comic book the rest of the comic book is i mean it's a little weird because it's a defenders comic but it's pretty standard superhero comic book fare about what we've come to expect from the defenders and the new defenders and i thought it was a pretty decent story Assistant Editor's Month, this is the first one that they did this. It was a company-wide thing. I think every issue that came out this month had that little warning on it and was in some way a weirdo one-off issue. In this one, like I said, the short story at the beginning is kept separate from the rest of the book. In others, I think it would be just a kind of comic that has a goofier tone. And the conceit of Assistant Editor's Month, and part of it is rooted in reality, is that once a year, all of the editors at Marvel take the month off to go to Comic-Con in San Diego, and so the assistant editors are left to put out their own issues. And so that was across the company every January 1984 issue, or almost all of them, I haven't really checked it, but would have that. And this is something that they would do, I don't think every year, but they would do periodically mm. at Marvel. And I think it's a fun conceit. Which means that this issue is not edited by Carl Potts. It is edited by Anne Nascenti, and she wrote the opening story, which is illustrated by Marie Severin. Uh, what did you think of that opening story? It's called Dreams of Glory. 
Man, it was really interesting. I did wonder how much was tongue-in-cheek about the, I guess, contentious nature, potentially, of the relationship between the assistant staff and the regular staff of mm-hmm. editors. It starts with them leaving and the uh, assistant editors just basically being pretty happy like these goofballs are taken off and it's not like friendly <laughs> the way it's depicted it's fun and and goofy but i don't know i couldn't really read between the lines if it was like like haha this is a joke that we're all sharing or if it was like you know we really don't like our bosses i think it's kind of nebulous and probably each assistant editor felt differently depending on who their full-time editor was mm-hmm I don't know what the relationship between any of them was, but there is a sense that maybe they are given license to poke a little bit of fun at their bosses in this issue, and the extent to which they were eager to take advantage of that opportunity and how much of it is kidding on the square is kind of up for grabs. I did want to talk about the creative team on that story a little bit. I love Anne Nascenti. She's been the assistant editor on The Defenders for a little while now. Not that long, I think about a year, which is when she first started at Marvel. And she is that rare hire at Marvel who did not come into it as a big fan of superhero comics who always wanted to work there. She never read superhero comics growing up and wasn't particularly into them. And I think that made her better at her job in a lot of ways, Mm. both as an editor and later as a writer. She wrote the first run on Daredevil that I ever read as it was coming out. I read the Daredevil Born Again series, the trade paperback of that, as it came out. It was one of the first trade paperbacks that Marvel put out. Hmm. I was about 10 years old. And I read that, and I really liked it. And then I was like, well, now I want to read more Daredevil comics. And she was the writer on Daredevil at the time and did some really interesting, really fun, really thoughtful stuff with that character. She also created the characters Mojo and Longshot for the X-Men, which really speaks to what her background was, which was in media studies. And so she did some really cool, really interesting stuff with that and incorporated stuff that she was reading by Noam Chomsky into comics and stuff Hmm. in a way that I think is really useful and really cool and you don't get a ton of when you have superhero comics fans making superhero comics. Their reference material is generally coming from other superhero comics, and so it can get, best case scenario, a little bit redundant. Worst case scenario, you get copies of copies, and you you lose something with that. So I really like Anne Nascenti's work. I think she does a great job as both an editor She was the editor of the X-Men line from, I think, 84 to about 88, which was a really interesting period for that team. Mm. And I love her stuff as a writer, too. The art is by Marie Severin. Have we ever talked about Marie Severin on this show? I don't think we have. I had to look up the Wikipedia page about her, and I, I did read that. She's great. Yeah. I love all of her work, and I don't want to belittle what she did accomplish, because I think she did some amazing things. It always makes me a little bit sad when I think of how much more she is capable of and the opportunities that she wasn't given. Uh, She started off as a colorist at EC Comics and was the colorist on Mad Magazine before it was Mad Magazine, back when it was Mad Comic Book. They Mm. changed to a magazine format to avoid having to go through the Comics Code censorship that was the self-censorship that comic book publishers were putting themselves through. 
she is an amazing colorist. She does a great job as a colorist, and that is how she worked the majority of her career. But she is also an amazing penciler, an amazing inker, a great writer, a great comedic writer specifically. She can work in any genre. She does some of my favorite Hulk covers that have been on Marvel Comics. And she is great at Mad Magazine-style illustrations, and it kills me that she was never given the opportunity to do illustrations for Mad Magazine. She should have been one of the first illustrators working on it. She was working alongside those people and was capable of doing as good or better work than guys like her brother John Severin, who was one of the original Mad Magazine artists, or Harvey Kurtzman, or Mort Drucker, or any of those guys. I think the two-page comic in this holds up to those standards really well, and Marvel did a mad knockoff called Crazy in the 70s, and she did a lot of work on that, and it was all great. Hmm. I sometimes think of her as the Doug Flutie of illustrators, because... Even she couldn't believe what she had done? <laughs> no, I think she could believe what she had done. I don't think she suffered for lack of self-confidence. But Doug Flutie was a quarterback who, when I was growing up, was my favorite quarterback. He was shorter than most quarterbacks, and so he didn't get starting roles very often. Now, his career was, in my mind, made remarkable by the fact that he was mostly a backup quarterback. And then it kept happening. The starting quarterback would be injured or out for the season. He would go in, would do a great job, would, like, take them to the playoffs, would win a bunch of games. And then at the end of the season, they'd be like, yeah, but you're short, so you can't be a starting quarterback. Back mm. to the bench. Mm. And I feel like that's what happened with Marie Severin. She would get these opportunities, and she would knock them fucking out of the park every single time. Everything that she was asked to do, she did amazingly well. And she never got ongoing pencils assignments on any book. Which is ridiculous, because she was so good at it. Mm. As I said, she was also very valuable to the company as a colorist. She was the head of the coloring department until 1972 when she decided she wanted to do more pencils and inks and be more available to do that kind of work. But even from that point on, she still did a lot of coloring for the company, and she was great at it. But I love her pencils. I love her inks. I wish she had gotten the opportunity to do more of it. She did a great little run on Doctor Strange. She did a lot of great covers for the company. She did the first two issues of Beware the Claws of the Cat, which I love. Great illustrator, and one that I really wish had gotten more opportunities, because everything she did, she did so goddamn well. Mm. So, that's Marie Severin, and I really like the way they work together. I thought it was a really fun opening story. You get a little bit of inside baseball stuff. You get various writers and assistant editors complaining to Anne Nascenti and her complaining about them. You get hints at... So, okay. One of the things that's going on here is she is, when she takes on the role of super editor, she gets a ray gun and she shoots holes in a bunch of characters that I guess are getting canceled or something. But she says, I'm cleaning up the Deadwood and starting a whole new line. I don't know that that is a reference to what Jim Shooter was trying to do at that point, but around this time, for Marvel's 25th anniversary, Jim Shooter did propose and was really pushing to kill off all the main characters and restart the line with a new universe. And that ended up getting shifted slightly and definitely, like, 
as an idea downsized into, okay, we'll also start this thing called the new universe and do that with new characters. But that was something that he had been pushing to do, was kill off existing characters and replace them with new characters and do just like a full-line reboot. Which they never ended up doing, but there was some push to do that at the time, and I don't know if that's a reference to that or not. What would be the argument for doing that? Were their sales dipping or something, and that's like a radical kind of reboot thing? Or I think there was both some creative push to do that, just in terms of, well, you know... Our continuity is getting a little bit complicated at this point. The timeline doesn't make sense anymore. This would have been around the same time as, or a little bit before, DC was pushing to do the Crisis on Infinite Earths, where you do, like, clean slate. You get a sales boost with that. I mean, it is essentially what DC did. Mm. He was proposing they do something similar at Marvel. Marvel's numbers were a little bit better at the time, but I think whenever you have a massive shift, you do get some attending publicity, and a bump in sales from it. But it is also a big risk because you risk alienating your current readership. I think one of the reasons they didn't go through with it was because people were trying to sell the company at the time, and so they didn't want to have any really major shifts in it. But, Makes yeah. Sense. So I liked that little, like, behind-the-scenes nods to things that might be happening. It was fun to speculate about that. I liked seeing Anne Nascenti on the phone with... uh with Stephen, Stephen King, King yeah. and the characters in the Marvel Universe, and, like, having Valkyrie complain about, I don't want to share a book with Beast anymore, he's fucking annoying. Uh-huh. Seeing the assistant editor of the book mirror some of my concerns about the book was validating. And yeah, overall, I thought it was a really fun story. I do kind of wish that it had been an issue that was more tied into the assistant editor's month theme, whatever that is, and maybe like a whole one-off weird issue. But I also get you are exactly one issue into the new Defenders relaunch of the book at this time. You don't necessarily want to derail that immediately. So I get it, but I did enjoy that story a lot. Yeah, and then the story itself, once you get into it, there's not really a ton that happens, right? So Iceman tells us parents he's gonna superhero Mm -hmm. uh cloud shows up and seeks refuge and then we get a little more insight into the secret empire Mm -hmm. and then the secret empire robots beat everybody up and kidnap cloud pretty much i think maybe the most lengthy sequence in the book is just exposition about professor power and I got to admit, I kind of glazed over reading that. That was some dense fucking exposition about a character we haven't really seen before. And I mean, I was relieved that he wasn't August Masters, but even as I was reading it, I was like, you know, I'm just going to look up who this guy is. <laughs> there was some weird stuff in there. So I feel like it's probably a more common thing for the child to want to become like the parent. Mm-hmm. And what was weird about this one was. So his kid's mind is shattered from the horrors of war and... And him being a dick about his kid's mind being shattered by the horrors of war. Yeah, they kind of gloss over that, but... And so his solution is, I'm just going to put my mind in my kid's body yeah, and put on a super suit. Yeah, get rid of my kid's mind. Altogether. And yeah. Like, there's something so inherently creepy about this idea of like stealing your own kid's youth so you can go avenge them, supposedly. Oh, it's super creepy. And Professor Power is a goddamn creep. I mean, 
his backstory is basically he is a slightly less evil Henry Kissinger. <laughs> I mean, he's a supervillain, so he's pretty evil. But I go into any situation with the assumption that everybody is less evil than Henry Kissinger. Like, Damn it, America, you are not living up to your divine providence. I'm mm -hmm. really disappointed. We got to fix this. We got to bomb more people. He was apparently either August Master's boss or his co-conspirator about the whole let's kill everybody in Russia plan. Mm -hmm. He was involved with that whole telepathy nonsense that led to Overmindy's existence. Real prick. And advisor to presidents. A very rapid pivot, though, from that stuff to now I just hate the X-Men or ex-members of the X-Men. Well, I mean, the X-Men are the reason why he is in his son's body. Like, basically, his son was having a bad time mentally and was like hey dad can i get some treatment can i please see a therapist and he's like no shut up we'll do this a different way i'm gonna kidnap professor x and make him fix your mind immediately and then i'll use him to kill everybody in russia and professor x was like nah, i ain't doing that mm -hmm. and that led to the whole situation in some way man that's a that's some twisted super bad guy logic right there right? yeah like Oh, you're not going to do what I asked you to do, kidnapped person? Now I hate you so bad. Oh, totally. What yeah. Jerk. I swear revenge on you for getting kidnapped. By me. Yeah. I will say one thing I do like about Professor Power is he does embody some of my favorite villainous tropes. First of all... Romans. <laughs> yeah. Roman centurion fetish. Uh-huh. Second of all, complementary color uniform. Mm -hmm. He's got orange and green going. I think the only hero who makes that work is Aquaman, and whether he makes it work is arguable. But, like those two things, and my favorite naming convention for a character, which is unusual last name and honorific. Like, mm. Doctor Strange, Doctor Doom, Professor Power. These are all people who just happen to have that last name. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty fucking great. Yeah, it is a good one. Professor Power. Nice uh -huh. alliteration. Too. Not quite as good as Doctor Strange, but if you were going to have any, like, noun or adjective slash honorific combo for a name, what would you go with? Oh, man. I never really paused to ponder that before. Okay, let's take it one piece at a time. Well, what do you want to go with for your honorific? You got Doctor, Professor, Captain... Mm. Those seem to be the main ones. I mean, you could go sergeant or lieutenant, but those seem a little bit too military-specific. Right. I think the ones you're probably mainly looking at are doctor, professor, captain. Of those three, which one are you taking? Yeah, probably not captain. I mean, we also glossed over any of the potentially religious-sounding ones, like reverend or... Yeah. Whatever. There, there aren't too many of those, though. Mister. You could be mister, too. Could be pope. <laughs> I mean, there was a character named Battle Pope for a while. But Battle Pope? Yeah, that was uh, by the guy that did The Walking Dead, Robert Kirkman. But it, I mean, it was specifically a parody type thing. Okay. Um, I like... Mister's not bad, actually. Mister's not bad. I, I, though, am leaning towards Professor because I kind of like the idea of being professorial. Yeah. Okay, so you got Professor. Uh-huh. I think I'm going to go with... Gosh... I'm torn between Doctor and Mister. I think maybe just Mister. And and this is a bad a bad guy working. You could be a bad guy or a good guy. Doctor I mean, 
Doctor Fate's last name isn't Fate, but you know, Doctor Strange. Uh huh. I'm gonna make this a bad guy, and I I really dislike it when people are rude. So I'm gonna be Professor Rude. Ooh. Okay, that's pretty good. Thank you. Professor Rude's not bad. I'm gonna be Mr. Occasion. Mr. Occasion? Yeah, I think Occasion's just like a good, like, it's nebulous, but like, it's a special event when he's there of some kind. Mm. Could be the occasion for your doom. Uh, Maybe I make some puns about that. mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's just a birthday party. But Mr. Occasion seems like, oh, when he's there, it's an event. Seems like you'd have to do a lot of potentially a lot of costume changes because you want to have occasion appropriate attire. I think if you go full formal, I think that works. Like a uh, powder blue tux with ruffles? Yeah, powder blue tux with ruffles, domino mask, top hat. Oh, man. And maybe a scepter. Uh huh. Professor Rude, I don't know what he would look like. Handicap, well, maybe. <laughs> possibly. See, with that, I, I would say, Professor Rude, you want to play into the pun of it. You wear a two-tone suit like you're a rude boy. <laughs> but also, uh, like a, a cap and gown. Uh-huh. So cap and gown with a two-tone suit. Uh-oh, some, like, boy. steel-toed wingtips. Uh-huh. Yeah. Professor Rude and Mr. Occasion. Whoa. What out. a team-up. What a battle. Could go either way. Maybe both. Yeah. There is a scene in this where Moondragon is practicing her kung fu moves in her bedroom, and Gargoyle and Valkyrie walk by, and Gargoyle is such a fucking schmuck. Nice (laughs) moves. Yeah, (laughs) it really did. It cracked me up, but I was like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? Not just that he sees her doing her kung fu in her room, by herself, and stops to be like, nice moves. (laughs) And she's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And he's like, no, I was just walking by, and I saw you doing karate, and I thought that your moves were nice, so I said, nice moves. (laughs) He doubles down on it. He's like, what are you saying? It's like, I was saying those moves are nice. Yeah, that was such an odd choice. Like, why are you drawing that word out? So, are you making fun of Moondragon? Is that why she's mad at you? I don't know what he's doing. Are I you think... being a creep? I, it's hard to tell. My suspicion is that he is just like an 85-year-old man playing with youth slang. And it's just like, this is the word the kids use. But he is so sure that that's the word the kids use and the way that they say it. That he's just like, oh, you don't uh, appreciate that. You must not have heard me right. I was saying a young, cool thing. Nice. Mm -hmm. And then he feels so like, I can't believe she didn't like it when I said nice when watching her do karate in her swimsuit. What's wrong with that lady? I was uh, at a a work meeting thing years and years ago and one like very higher up person who was a, an older person used the term throwing shade and were they so proud of themselves you could tell they were but it also was just so jarring and it's like, i just i think that's maybe what is happening here i think it probably is but i did also like that afterwards yes gargoyle's reaction was just like what's wrong with that lady that she doesn't like my cool slang 
I remember when I first joined the team, people were, for some reason, not super accepting of me right away. It's like, okay, first of all, they actually were accepting of you right away, which is weird because you did try to damn one of them to hell eternally in exchange for economic incentives for your small town. Yeah, I mean, it's very human <laughs> yeah. of Gargoyle, actually, to have that reaction, right? It's it's like that, like, ex-smokers are the worst kind of thing mm. about yeah, giving people that still smoke a hard yeah. time. Yeah, converts are always the mm -hmm. most zealous. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's got some of that going on. I can identify. That wasn't the only bit of weird dialogue in this book. Uh, there was some, some very fun stuff that I, I do want to get to, but there is a couple of odd... Did you read this as a double entendre? As they are heading home, Angel says to his rad girlfriend, Candy Southern, I'm so bloated from Mrs. Drake's dinner that I'd like to lay down on my bed and groan for an hour or two. Which is immediately followed by the thought bubble. Wonder if Moondragon's still awake. And then his girlfriend responds, I just might join you. Was that whole thing, that was intended as a double entendre, right? If nothing else, it was intended as a playful couple thing. But yeah, I, I read it sexy-wise. Yeah, well, I mean, the bloating thing throws it into question a bit. It is very rare that you have that coupled with sexy talk. But it did lead into... Again, we saw this in the previous issue, Bobby and Warren having identical thought bubbles about being attracted to Moondragon. Because in the next panel, apropos of nothing, Bobby does think to himself, I wonder if Moondragon's still awake. What do you think about that? Is that working for you? I don't know. I mean, it kind of same thing as when we discussed it last time. The obvious sort of conclusion is that she's up to some hijinks, right? Messing mm -hmm. with them. But... I don't know. It's also possible that these guys are a couple of creeps. Yeah, but why would they have the exact same wording? Like, that yeah. doesn't add up. Somebody's messing with them. Maybe it's Moondragon, maybe it's somebody else. I don't know. Mm. Maybe it's Bobby's parents. They're weirdos. What did you think of Bobby's parents? You know, I came out of that feeling kind of bad for him. We got a stressed out, passed out mom and a burnt crotched <laughs> coffee poured dad see the thing is uh you didn't listen to the sarah century episode that you were gone for did you no not yet okay we talked about bobby's parents a lot in that because they come up a lot and it is difficult for me to feel much sympathy for them seeing the ways that they are portrayed later on in comic books they are shown as being very bigoted very disapproving of their son, both as a superhero and a mutant, and later, when he comes out of the closet, as a gay man. They are very opposed to that and are clearly bigoted, not just against mutants, but against all kinds of people. And you don't so much see that here, but in both this and the Iceman miniseries, you see the seeds of it and you see where later creators were picking up on things that were placed in these. I don't think that is the intent that we're supposed to come across from this, but I will say they are immediately all over the map in terms of their emotions about this and really inconsistent with how they handle things. It honestly makes me wonder if there is some like residual Professor X shit going on because they do mention, I think this is an odd reaction to have. Like, man, 
you know, when you were in high school, your professor just erased any worries that we had by shielding us from the fact that you were mutants or doing anything weird whatsoever. I missed that. That was great. Well, I mean, he does kind of say, like, I don't know if that was, like, morally cool or not, but... But it was way better than this. Yeah. It, it is just an odd reaction. And they go from, like, laughing and joking to when Warren is like, well, you know, uh, I'm still a superhero and I feel like we do good work. And he's just like, and you almost got killed, you son of a bitch! Mm-hmm. The other thing that is odd specifically about Bobby's parents, Bobby is college student age at this point. He has dropped out of college, but he is back in college. I think he's supposed to be, like, maybe 20 at the oldest at this point. His parents are old as fuck. Mm-hmm. Like, they seem to be, like, 80. Yeah, no, they're definitely drawn. So, so they had him when they were, like, 60. It's pretty late. Seems, seems like a weird situation. Yeah, it does. I will say, all that aside, I did appreciate the domestic scene of them all going over to the Drake household for dinner and... I liked that Candy was invited, too, and I liked that when Beast is like, and see, I turned out just fine. Everybody just stares at him and is like, fucking seriously? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're supposed to be the poster boy for just fine? I think we're probably supposed to get from that that when they knew Beast, he was just a regular-looking guy who wasn't covered with blue fur. But I think knowing Beast, there is a lot that you can glean from the way everybody looks at him when he says, I turned out just fine. Yeah, now he has a healthy appreciation for himself. He certainly does. He also has a appreciation, whether it's healthy or not, is yet to be determined, for Gumby. What a weird little aside. It was. I loved that, I gotta say. I think it's very character building for both him and Bobby, and for Warren to an extent that he's like, oh, you guys are so childish. And his girlfriend is like, yeah, you're a fucking child too. Yeah. No, that's, I loved that Beast's first thought when the evil robots are going to the brownstone to mash it up. That take, oh, they better not touch my Gumby tapes. <laughs> Have you watched Gumby? As a child, yeah. I what do you remember it? thinking about it? Um, boring. That was my main thing of it when I was a kid, was watching it, and I was like, oh man, it is older than I thought it was. It started in like the mid-50s, and I watched some clips of it, and man, that show is slower and sadder and weirder than it had any goddamn right to be. So was there really an episode where chickens ate atomic chicken feed? Yes, and grew to enormous size. Oh, that's I looked it up. That was an actual episode. Oh, shit. I mean, weird stuff happened on that show. And, like, there was, like, some aspects of it where, like, it was, like, Toy Story, where it's like, oh, that's a model car that's still in a box, and then they get it out of the box and drive around in it. And then some stuff where it's just like, oh, no, they're just people doing a thing. It's a weird fucking show. Kind of cool. Hmm. His appreciation for it definitely confirms the fact that Beast is a fucking big old stoner. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That he is that into it. And at that point, there was actually a resurgence in Gumby appreciation at around the time when this came out because of Eddie Murphy's Gumby impression on Saturday Night Live. It kind of sparked a renaissance for Gumby. They started replaying the show at that point. And uh, that's why a few years later, they did a reboot of it in 88. Wow, no shit. Yeah. Years ago, as a work thing, we were all gifted Gumby toys hmm. because the group we worked in was called Flex Services. <laughs> uh, that makes sense. They thought it would be cute. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a good toy. Uh-huh. Yeah, a little Gumby in my, my cube for a while. I mean, it's nice that, like, the Gumby that you get is like, oh, this is Gumby. Like, it looks exactly like the character because the character is a toy. Mm-hmm. And, like, composable, pretty easy to do yep. as far as articulation goes. Huh? Put some pipe cleaners over some clay. Pretty Ooh, much. Rubber, I guess, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I always kind of liked Gumby. Hmm. Weird shit, though. Good to know. What did you think of the art in this issue? I'm still just kind of stuck on two characters that were introduced in the first non-Defenders story, which are at the very end, and that's, I think, uh, Mr. Popcorn or Popcorn Man and Dizzy Lady. Yeah. What is up with those guys? I was honestly wondering if Popcorn Man was a nod to Cloud, but there is some interesting side characters that are going on. There is also, like, Stupid Man, also pretty good. Oh, yeah. Hey, can I change my costume? (laughs) I would too, man. Yeah, I don't know exactly what was going on with uh, a lot of those guys. I'm not super familiar with Marvel Publishing at the time. Also, frankly, if we're just talking about that, curious about the Red Sonia-type character who is about to be relegated to oblivion, who says, but my boyfriend writes and draws me. Yeah, that's a little weird. Yeah, I mean, makes sense, though. When you think about all of the self-inserts that Marv Wolfman does, where he's basically dating Starfire. Uh-huh. Kind of makes sense. Like I said, we already talked about it a little bit in the opening story. I loved all of that art. For the art in the regular issue, we see a familiar returning name. Uh, Sal Buscema does the layouts to this. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, he really evens out a lot of the rough edges that Alan Cooperberg's art has. Rough edges is maybe the wrong term because there are no rough edges in Paul Cooperberg's art. It's very rounded, very cartoony. But I think the Sal Buscema layouts ground it in a way, and it is much more readable. I had mentioned before that in addition to having like a filmation cartoony style to it, it also had what I think of as a filmation choppiness to it, where the action doesn't necessarily flow in an intuitive manner from one panel to the next. Mm-hmm. And that is gone here. In this, the layouts that Buscema did, they work in a way that makes sense to me that you don't need to think about. And you definitely still see Cooperberg's signature style in it, but it works for me much, much better in this context. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think the expressions on a lot of the faces were were pretty well done. Mm -hmm. Beast looked a little different somehow than I'm used to him looking, though. A little bit, yeah. We I think we got used to a pretty specific look for Beast under Don Perlin, mm-hmm. and it is, if nothing else, very different under Alan Cooperberg. He looks still monstrous, but in a very different way. There are some scenes in which it is done much better than others. Uh, one of my favorite Beast scenes is uh, the robot double take. I think is done really, really well. He is mid-sentence talking about like, oh, and then this is happening. Hey, look, flying robots. Goes back to his sentence and then does the very classic a second later. Stops and is like, wait a minute, flying robots? Yeah. It's really difficult to pull off a double take in comic book form. And they do a really nice job with that here. Yep. That one stood out to me as well. Moon Dragon is portrayed very interestingly in this issue. She is shown being very compassionate towards Cloud, I think uncharacteristically so, in a way that Valkyrie specifically calls out as being somewhat unsettling and 
given her bad vibes, how nice Moon Dragon is being. What did you make of that? Yeah, it was weird that to me she was getting bad vibes from it, but at the same time, it was such an abrupt, you know, I'm, I'm a big jerk, stop watching me do kung fu. Like, oh, poor Cloud. <laughs> like, I'm <laughs> yeah. gonna give you a hug and be motherly. Or I mean, Cloud wasn't spying on her in a room while she exercised and going, nice! <laughs> <laughs> so there is Sounds that. happy when we both say it, too. <laughs> yeah. The main thing I was struck by about Moondragon in this issue is it has come up before. I suspect it will continue to come up, but I am reaching a saturation point for my suspension of disbelief that she keeps forgetting she has the headband on. It is becoming a, like, Turbo Teen-like situation at this point, where in, in the cartoon Turbo Teen, he would continually seem to forget that whenever he got hot, he turned into a Trans Am. Mm -hmm. And so somebody would be like, hey, you want to eat some spicy chili peppers? And be like, sure, sounds great. Oh, fuck. <laughs> you see that with Moondragon again in this issue for the third time in as many issues, maybe, honestly, probably for the fifth or sixth time in three issues, she tries to use her psychic powers, and then it's like, oh, right, I got the stupid fucking headband, and gets the immediate feedback that causes her intense pain. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of sick of her forgetting she's got the headband on. Yeah, I don't know if I read that one as she forgot, or she was just so mad. She just tries to power through it. Yeah, she was so mad at the robots. I can see that. I mean, how many times did we see Silver Surfer smack into the Earth's barrier like a fucking pigeon in a glass sliding door. Mm-hmm. All right. I'll cut her a little bit of slack with it. Thank you. Well, Corey, was there anything else you wanted to bring up before we get into the minutia? Let's see. Popcorn Man, Dizzy Lady. Nope, we're good. <laughs> okay. I think Dizzy Lady might have been a reference to Dazzler, maybe. Just, I don't know, from the sound of the name. Yeah, Tough I, to tell. I searched it, and the closest I got was Dizzy Dames, which is a really sexist comic from... I don't know when, 50s at mm. some point. Yeah, sounds like it's it. It's about ladies that are really dumb. Yeah, no, I I, I figured that out okay, from context. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw a few of the covers and was like, oh, even the cover gives me the mm. bad feels. Yeah. Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what category do you feel like starting off with? Let's uh, talk about clothes. Let's, let's uh, go to sartorially speaking. Let's, because dang, there are a lot of clothes to talk about in this issue. Let's start with the opening story. The clothes that first struck me in this comic were the outfits worn by the freelance writers who gather around super editor and Nascenti's desk. I feel like these have to be caricatures of specific writers at Marvel. We don't see their faces, but Marie Severin was known for doing caricatures of people at work. Uh, it was kind of a rite of passage there. It was, uh, oh, you're one of us. She made a mean caricature of you. <laughs> so I would almost bet that that is who these people are supposed to represent. I don't know who is who, although... You do see one guy saying, you see the new puppy. And so I believe that is probably J.M. DeMatteis. Because Sassafras is modeled after a puppy he had? Yeah, because Sassafras mm -hmm. was modeled after his new puppy. 
I think maybe the guy in the trench coat and fedora, I mean, obviously it's a trench coat and fedora, so he could be anybody, <laughs> but from his lanky nature and mode of dress, my guess is going to be Frank Miller. Oh, really? I do not know who the other three people are. There is a person in a white suit with a yellow fedora, and then you have a whacked out member of Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. He's like a hybrid Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem member. He's got Dr. Teeth's fedora. He's got Zoot's hair and hat. He's got Janice's legs. <laughs> uh, he's got some cowboy boots and he's dressed all in denim with a giant polka dot cravat. It is a hell of a look. It's so complicated. And then you have another guy who is wearing just a tan pants and a green plaid shirt and has his fingers crossed behind his back. It is just a hodgepodge, but looking at that, I get very curious as to who is supposed to represent whom. Yeah, I would like to know that as well. Other fashion. Certainly no dearth of it. The other thing that next stood out most to me was Beast's shirt and sandal combo. Yeah, what is up with that shirt? It's like, uh, it has embroidered, very fancy, I think, embroidery just around the cuffs. Yeah, and it is a loose fitting, I would say, probably like light blue linen shirt would be my guess. The kind of thing you would see a dude with a puka shell necklace wearing. Like a faux South American, quote, peasant, unquote, style shirt. Yeah, I think he got that at like a Saturday market. Yeah, or maybe at Mosquito Traders in the Newington Mall. (laughs) I just can't get the smell of Nog Chompa out of this thing. (laughs) No, that is a shirt that you cannot get the smell of Nog Chompa out of. Uh, And he's also got some sandals, which is a, a fun touch. Yeah, he is high AF. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Steve Englehart has talked openly about the fact that when he wrote the character change in Beast from dark and brooding, he went right to, oh, he went to California and started getting high all yep. the time. California Beast. And uh, yeah, this is a high California Beast. It is not a drug rug as such, but it is drug rug adjacent. Mm. Other fashion? Candies, uh, camouflage, I mean, tiger stripe dress. Yeah, nature's perfect camouflage. She can hide in the tall grass of wherever tigers are from. Mm -hmm. And uh, man, they are just like a strikingly handsome couple. Very attractively drawn. Mm -hmm. Her dress, though, is very cool. Yes. And Warren is wearing, of course, a three-piece suit. Of course. Because it is much more dramatic when you uh, have wings come out of that thing. Oh, yeah. Bobby's got a nice sweater, but really, there is just a ton of fashion in this issue. I do want to pause on on Bobby's outfit, because to me, it looks like he's got bleached those, like, white jeans that had a moment in the 80s, Mm -hmm. and then rather tight-fitting, kind of bumblebee sweater, yellow and black. Yeah, with the jeans, my guess is he tried to acid wash them himself, (laughs) and it didn't go great, so he just dumped bleach in the washer and uh, had at them that way, Mm -hmm. which is a move that I made in the 90s. I experimented with, uh, with bleach in the 80s as well. I had one pair of pants where I was like, it'll just look cool if I just drop blobs of bleach all over them. It didn't look cool. And so then I kind of doubled down on that by like, you know what I'll do on that one big blob? I'll draw the Red Hot Chili Peppers logo. Cool. It was very cool. I spent so much time getting it just right. Uh Uh-huh. You could have just gone with the Dead Kennedys logo way easier. It would have been way easier, but there was a girl that I liked that I knew liked the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, did you impress her? <laughs> I actually did. It worked, Corey. Oh, 
It should not have, but yeah. Simpler times. It is, but man, that reinforced our wrong message to me. <laughs> I'm gonna put bleach and chili peppers on everything. <laughs> it's the eight points of chaos. <laughs> is that what it was for? I Somebody mentioned that once. Oh, boy. I did get really good at making the Dead Kennedys logo, though. Mm. Do you remember I used to be able to draw it in paprika on the hummus that I would serve at Nicholas's? I do, yeah. That was yeah. a very punk rock uh, move. Yeah, man. Yeah. It really showed society. Enjoy your hummus, bourgeoisie. Yeah. Chickpeas Uber Alice. <laughs> Corey, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? I think my favorite sound effect was the sound of, I think it's Angel being backhanded by a robot, mm-hmm. which is schmack. That is pretty good. I believe that was part of what I call the ACK trilogy, mm. or perhaps the build the cat cycle that we get <laughs> on page 17, which is Robot backhands Moondragon with a thwack, Valkyrie slices robot with a flack and angel hits robot with a swack mm. oh no so the one you had was separate that was a thwack no i had a schmack a schmack page 21 okay totally different there were i gotta say a lot of great sound effects in this that seems to be one area that alan cooperberg has really invested in which makes sense because it works really well with a more cartoony style Oh, schmeck with an E. Yeah, schmeck. Yeah. Followed by a chuck of uh, That was Beast. Beast not, being not thrown angel. through a wall. Mm-hmm. Man, just on that page, we also have a shaka and a mmm. Which is the sound of a robot tractor beam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get a shaka of electricity followed by a mmm like of the, a tractor uh, beam. I like the cute laser noise from their eyeball slits too that makes a zee Mm -hmm. Zee. we also have my two favorites which are graga oom graga oom graga oom that is on page 15 it is on the big splash panel the Mm. the full page bursting through a wall thing gra hyphen g space o o m exclamation point graga oom yeah that's a good one and we also have on the page opposite that a shakakoom. There's some great sound effects in this. There is. I like the cronk. Cronk is pretty good. Well, we've talked about the art a little bit already. What were your favorite panels in this comic? I love the panel where the bad guys are Kool-Aid manning through the wall. That mm. has that, not crackoom, but gragaoom. The gragaoom. And it, it is dynamic and exciting, and the defenders look horrified, the robots look menacing. Pretty good. Yeah, no, that is one of my favorites as well. There is also, we talked about the robot double take that Beast has. That triptych of panels is up there for me as well. Mm-hmm. Just the expression is handled so well in that. But I think maybe my favorite is in the opening story, the initial debut of Ann Nascenti as super editor. It's just such a fun panel. Uh, you have her wearing her superhero outfit that has the big sunburst and the uh, jumpers as part of it with the big puffy. That's uh, what those are called? Mm-hmm. Why did, did, why did those 
Why is that a thing? I don't know. Those are dumb looking it's, pants. It's horse people and directors. You'll have to ask them. But I think because she is a director, it makes sense for her to be wearing jumpers. Because, you know, she's in charge of the situation. Mm. But, uh, yeah, she's got a ray gun. It's very, like, Flash Gordon slash cowgirl aviatrix look. Mm-hmm. But it's really badass. Her outfit is great. The transformation that comes over her, where she goes from being very meek to very assertive and confident. And the little caricatures of all of the Marvel characters and made-up people. You mentioned Popcorn Man and Dizzy Lady are there. But you also have little cartoons of Valkyrie and Thor and Beast and Angel and somebody named Stupid Man and some kind of a furry gnome and a person with two heads. And kind of a diss on Beast. He's got little, like, uh, what I think of as like a stink line and some flies. Yeah, he's, he's smelly. That's why Valkyrie's like, I don't want to be in a scene with him. He's a scene stealer, but also pretty smelly. Stanky. Yeah, it's just stanky. No thank you. Yep. That's what Val says all the time. <laughs> yep. I mean, she says it in, like, Elizabethan English sometimes, because that's sometimes her thing. <laughs> Thou art so stanky, no thank you. <laughs> By Odin's beard. Stanky, no thank you. Uh... Mm. Every issue of a Defenders or New Defenders comic book has a best defender and also a worst offender. In this issue, who did you have as your best and who did you have as your worst? Man, this was challenging. Nobody seemed to have done a particularly good job in this issue. Right. So what I had to go on performance-wise, I guess, was mainly robot smashing. Mm-hmm. And so I had kind of a tie between Moondragon and Gargoyle. Because Gargoyle did the put the finishing touch on knocking out the, sure. the robot. And I don't know, I, I have kind of a mixed feelings about Gargoyle in this one, where on one hand, I, I totally can't identify with it. Like, well, I went through this experience and I am okay, so yeah. you should be that way too. But also I can see Moondragon's like, hey man, I've been in space for a while, so I don't know I'm supposed to shut the door to get some privacy. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't you guys back off So maybe bit? you don't just watch me exercise and make creepy comments about it? Yeah. So, yeah, tough one. I'm going to go on the assumption that Gargoyle wasn't being creepy and he was just trying slang real hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. As a fellow somewhat old person, <laughs> I'm going to give him the nod. Okay. I went with him as my worst. Uh, I had Moondragon as my best. Is this two in a row of us having a... I think maybe. I don't, I don't know if it's a full opposite. Did you have Moondragon as your worst? No. Okay. Yeah, no, I had uh, I had Moondragon as my best. I was frustrated, and I think I'm going to get more frustrated with her pulling a turbo teen and forgetting she has a magic headband. Hmm. But she did a good job with the robot smashing, and she showed a lot of compassion towards Cloud. I do not have whatever insight Valkyrie has that maybe it's a bad thing that she's being nice and compassionate, but I thought it was a nice thing to do, and uh, just on its surface, nice to a very vulnerable woman in a distressful situation. Young woman. I keep forgetting they made her 17, and that strikes me as unnecessarily creepy if they are going to give her such a scanty outfit, but... I guess they want to maybe highlight how vulnerable she is. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think they needed or to. Or appeal to young readership. That's yeah, men. Maybe. Young men. But I think Moondragon did a good job. 
Uh, so she's my best. And then, yeah, I had Gargoyle as my worst for the uh, aforementioned. Nice. <laughs> well, no, I was watching you work out, and I like how you were bouncing around, so I said nice. What's wrong with that? Oh, I can't give a woman a compliment oh, anymore. That's, come on, it's not like that. I just think you'd be prettier if you smiled, Moon Dragon. If so he, that's if why he, I had him as my worst. That's well, shit, man. If he, if he said that off camera, it was and I, implied, and, and I missed it, then I'll switch him and Moon Dragon out. But if he didn't, I think he did a good job fighting that robot. For my worst. Because you are supposed to be the leader and not just taking bong hits and watching Gumby. <laughs> if he had taken bong hits and watched Gumby in this issue, uh, he would have absolutely gotten my best defender vote. And then also, for we know he's extremely agile and dexterous and has, that's sort of part of his superpower set. He could have easily not only kept Bobby's mom from you know bonking her head on the floor when she passed out, but also, he could have prevented Bobby's dad from pouring that hot coffee all over his crotch. <laughs> you just let that happen. Yeah, I, like I said... I didn't know they were bigots, so I'm okay with yeah. it now. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, knowing what I now know about Bobby's parents, I want him to keep pouring hot coffee on his crotch. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's fair. I guess. But, no, I, I, I get where you're coming from. With the information I had, it seemed mm. reasonable. Well, and I think Beast is a decent choice. Regardless. He's not super effective, right? He tries to, like, distract a robot with humor and gets backhanded through a wall. Not super effective, and like Gargoyle, he also does the, like, Well, I turned out just fine. Well, I mean, he probably doesn't say it in that voice because he's not Gargoyle, but they both do the, uh, What's the big deal? I went through this and it was fine for me. Mm-hmm. Boo. Boo, indeed. Let's have ourselves a battle of the band names. In this issue, what band names were you able to find? I had three. I had two, so why don't you go first and we'll uh, sandwich them up. All right. I am surprised that these, based on my very cursory looking, are not actual band names. Some okay. Of them. Actually, no, the first one I'm not surprised. It's not a, a band name because it's pretty goofy. What is it? That one is the Tin Plated Creeps. Oh, dude, I had that one too. Oh, shit. So I guess that's probably the one we're going with, unless you also had the Ineffable Horrors. I did not. That is good. Damn it. <sighs> I know. Damn it. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry I came up with a good one and also one that you came up with. Bad job. What are your other two? My other two are also better than my first one that we both had. <laughs> The Bloody Dance of History. Oh, that is pretty good. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of experimental, oingo boingo y. Yeah, maybe do some midnight oil covers. Uh huh. Or the, what was the, what was the guys with the eyeballs on their heads? The residents? Yeah. I didn't ever understand the residents. No, me either, but they had eyeballs on their heads. That's pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool. What was your other one? Uh, the other one is Tragic Love Affair. Oh, that's pretty good too. Mm -hmm. But tin plated creeps it is. What the fuck do they sound like? I didn't even think they were gonna... Uh, I would say borderline novelty punk. Kind of like... No novelty punk? Like they play kazoos or something through distortion pedals? No, just that they have a sense of humor. And that's why I say borderline novelty. Because, like, you got, you have a few bands that are like that. Like, Me. in various degrees, you have NoFX and the Dead Milkmen. Mm -hmm. I mean, totally different bands, but both of them are 
what I would call maybe borderline novelty punk. You know what I mean? Hmm. I, I would say probably leaning towards, to my mind, the slightly better version of that, which is the Dead Milkmen. Mm. Well, let's say maybe the, the tin-plated creeps are that. They maybe also wear a lot of tinfoil, wouldn't they? Yeah, like, tinfoil hats, probably. Yeah. Conspiracy stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tin plate is slightly satirical conspiracy theory punk music. Mm. Or they do creepy covers of Tin Hat Trio. Okay, remind me, who's the Tin Hat Trio again? Tin Hat Trio's music, if memory serves, which it may be faulty, is more instrumental stuff. Okay. Like, um, I want to say almost old-timey sounding, but I can't remember. Okay. But yeah, not a lot of singy, more play. Well, since neither of us is quite sure <laughs> who the Tin Hat Trio is, let's say they're what the first one we came up with. Yeah, borderline novelty punk. Like but a borderline novelty conspiracy theory punk. Well, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, but it's a satire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, eat your paisley. Yeah. I got it. Well, there we go. Corey, mm. lot to choose from in this category, but what was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie, were that pie not made out of steel? I enjoyed the kind of closing bits that were after the Defenders essentially have failed in their job to defeat the robots and keep clouds safe, Mm -hmm. the way that that was narrated. And that, I think, starts on page 21. And then, with an impotent crackling of lightning, a chillingly clinical electrical hum, it is over. All that remains is the rubble and the shame. And then... That sadness is followed up with a real goof from Bobby. <laughs> that, which was, I think, my favorite line. This never happened in accounting school. Basically, I should have listened to my mom. It's a pretty great line. Pretty great line to end it on, too. And yeah, ties in thematically, and I think especially after reading that Iceman miniseries a couple weeks ago, really resonated with me as a great closing line for Bobby. So I think that was probably my favorite, but. I also did really enjoy, uh, as we have discussed before, Hank's robot double take. Laugh it up if you may, Warren Worthington III, but while you're up there on your perch celebrating your maturity, oh look, giant flying robots. I'm down here on the ground having one heck of a good giant flying robots. Pretty yep. good. Yeah, there's no doubt about that being a classic double take. Mm -hmm. uh, It's very well done. I also liked from Beast on the following page. We mentioned it before. The uh, So help me if they so much as touch those Gumby tapes. (laughs) He's so worried about that. Well, it used to be hard to get videotapes of stuff like that that wasn't on the air anymore. He looks so angry when he's saying that. He had to trade around so many other stoner college kids for those party tapes of Gumby. Yeah. I also very much enjoyed a diss that one of the robots had on Beast. Beast is cracking wise and trying to hit him. And the robot says, Analysis, subject Beast, attempts to divert this unit with response designated humor. Illogical. And then he beats the shit out of Beast. Schmack. Knocks him right through a wall. Schmacks him good. That is some good smack talk from a robot. Oh, yeah. Oh, apparently you're trying to do a thing called humor. I can see anybody saying that to Beast. 
in pretty much any situation. And uh, yeah, pretty good. In fact, I think, hasn't Moondragon said a similar thing to him? I believe so, probably while punching him through a wall. Mm. Well, Corey, he's not in this comic anymore, but I think we would both agree that the Hulk still rules. Where did we land on renaming this? Because I was toying with a few things. Uh, Madame McEvil's Helpful Hints being one of them. That being the former name that Moondragon went by, Madame McEvil. I kind of like the idea of her having a finishing school. (laughs) Or we can just stick with the Hulk rules. What, What are your thoughts on that? Boy, let's mix it up because I feel like if we go with Madame McEvil's Helpful Hints, we can give really bad advice or we can give good advice ah okay well let's go with uh madam mckeevil's helpful hints and make we can maybe play with the title of that a little bit but uh i do like bringing in madam mckeevil because i think that's one of the best names doesn't quite follow the professor power naming structure because i think her last name was douglas not mckeevil initially Mm -hmm. so it was a fully assumed moniker but still pretty good name pretty good well, let's take a little trip to Madame McEvil's finishing school. What helpful hints were you able to find in this comic? Those were, I don't know, if you've been on Moons of Titan or something, and you, you, didn't, you don't know this. If you got some roommates, or you're in a, a crowded place, and you would like some privacy, go ahead and shut your door. Huh! Never would have occurred to me. Yep. I think that's a very good helpful hint. Yep. I had... Madame McEvil's helpful hint this week be that if you make the argument, look at me, I went through that shit and I turned out just fine, so everyone should go through that shit, then guess what? You didn't turn out just fine. Nah, that's a jerk thing. Yeah, you have both Gargoyle and Beast say at one point in this, look at me, I turned out just fine. You should never make that argument. It just opens you up immediately to whether it's true or not. And in this case, I think it is true. People pointing at you and being like, you think you turned out just fine? Oh, no, 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 no. So, yeah, that's uh, Madame McEvil's helpful hint this week. Pretty good. Yeah. We'll make uh, some fine finishing school professors. Carry a book on your head all the time, and uh, when you're dining, you go outside take, take in. the forks, yeah, outside in. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh-huh. There we go. All right. Yeah, that's how you do a fork. Little to big. Sure. Right? I think so. Don't they go little to big? You got the little one is for a... Uh, Salad. No, you start with snails or fondue, right? Do we? Probably. Oh, man, that sounds interesting. I've never had a snail. I haven't either. I think I would be a little bit creeped out by the idea, but I hear they're good, and they're usually in a lot of butter. Yeah, butter. Yeah. So I, I mean, like, I like shellfish. Mm-hmm. This is just like land shellfish. And I like pistachios, which are the other land shellfish. Tree clams. Yeah. I got it. So I guess probably I like snails. So you use a little fork for that. Okay, snail fork, salad fork, regular fork. Dessert. Soup fork. <laughs> Dessert. Dessert fork, mm-hmm. which isn't bigger, so it's not sizes off the table. Damn it. But he's still outside in. Oh, yeah. Always. Yeah. Well, there you go. Done. You're welcome. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Oh, and even though they do it in cartoons and it looks cool, apparently it is considered at least somewhat uncouth to pick up your napkin and tuck it into your neck hole. Oh. Yeah, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to put it on your lap. Yeah, always. And there you have it. All right. Corey, I got just one more question I got to ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1984, where does the time go? And the month of our Lord, January, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Wong was having a reaction that many people had to an advert that he saw during the Super Bowl. Mm, was Wong British at this time? Oh, did I say advert? <laughs> you did. We don't say that here. Oh, and no, you can say advert. In this country, we call it a lorry. Okay, so like many people, Wong was having a reaction to this lorry. That's, I see what you did there. Wong and Steve were enjoying some fine Jamaican incense, eating some popcorn, having a good old time watching the Super Bowl, and the Ridley Scott directed advertisement for the Apple Macintosh computer came on, which, man, you should, if you don't remember it, you should go check it out. It's pretty amazing. It has a very, like the, you know, George Orwell 1984 thing, and then it's all blue, gray, creepy tones, mm -hmm. and, and this woman comes in and throws a sledgehammer at the TV and smashes it, and you get the Apple logo. It's quite a thing. That's a real good ad. Wong, as we know, technology aficionado. Fuck, man, I'm gonna go get one of those. So, yeah. Uh, when they came out on the 24th of the month, Wong waited in line, got his Apple Macintosh personal computer, paid 2500 bucks for it, which is, I don't know, around $7,000 in today's money, and, uh, had himself a good old time playing around with Mac Paint, but then Steve came by and said, oh, what are you doing, Wong? And Wong told him and showed him uh, the word processing program that came with it too, and next thing you know, he's conscripted into uh, typing out the whole script for uh, Fred Bassett series. Oh boy. He's moved on to a series, not a musical. Well, it's just too much to contain. <laughs> oh boy. I mean, that comic strip went on for a little while. In 50 years now. Yeah. I don't think it had been. It hadn't been out that long then, though. Well, no, but it's enough it's material still, yeah. to not just fit in one Broadway production. Oh, no. Oh, no. You're right. Ep episodic, ongoing series musical, like Cop Rock. Yeah. That's the way to do it. Exactly. So, yeah, poor Wong staring into that little, I don't know, what was it, like a nine-inch screen, mm -hmm. <laughs> typing away in <laughs> McWord or whatever it was called. Well, that may be one thing that Wong was doing, but it wasn't the only Wong doing that Wong was doing. And in fact, it wasn't the only one related in some way to that ad. You see, when Wong saw that TV ad, he was somewhat prepared for it, because going into the year 1984, he had reread George Orwell's 1984. And uh, was pretty disturbed by it. It's a disturbing book. It's mm. a great book, but mm -hmm. uh, a, a chilling one. Bummer. And so as he was reading it, he was in his room, reading his book. Steve wanders by, and he's like, Wong, you seem awfully quiet. What are you up to? And Wong said through the door, Reading 1984. It's chilling. And Steve was like, Oh, yes, very good, very good. Then Steve went downstairs. This is the early part of January. Turned on the TV and saw a Wendy's ad that featured one Clara Peller. At the Where's the Beef Lady? Yes, famed for her catchphrase, Where's the Beef? And Steve saw that and it just freaked him out. He had a similar reaction that you did, Corey, <laughs> where he was just very unsettled for reasons that he had difficulty articulating. 
by this where's the beef lady. He's like, oh, I need to chill out. Now, what was it that <laughs> Wong recommended? He said that something 1984 is good for chilling. Oh, I need oh, to chill out no. so bad. So he called up his local department store and said, uh, I need 1984 to help me chill. Uh, they sent over a copy of Van Halen's 1984, oh. which had just come out the previous day. and. Work to treat. He listened to that, and then he was like, oh, yes, Panama. Ah, 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 oh, oh. Yes, very good. Oh, Wong, this is delightful. We are on the same page. And they weren't on the same page, but uh, for the rest of that month, when one of them would say, like, oh, 1984, chilling. And Wong would be like, yes, it was chilling. They would have a, a conversation that... Each of them felt good about, even though they were saying very different things. And that is the Wong doings that Wong was doing in January of 1984. Oh, see, these goes so hot for teacher. <laughs> he's not British, Clint. It's his, his affectation. Oh, yeah. Yes, he's a flame ghost. Very hot for teacher. Oh, yes, very. I'm gonna watch this advert. Quite, quite ribald. <laughs> yes, yes, they're hot for everything. They're flame ghosts. <laughs> this Michael Anthony fellow seems to know what the business is. And that is the Wong doings that Wong and Steve were doing: watching a Super Bowl ad, listening to Van Halen, and reading some Orwell. Not necessarily in that order. Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, Corey, thanks for uh, coming over and uh, talking about this comic book with me. I had a nice time. You're welcome, and I had a nice time, too. Good. We'll be back next week to talk some new Titans, see what Raven's up to with her big-dicked pal. <laughs> if you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Tighten up the defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically. Can you imagine such a thing? At ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up on some places in the internet. Seek us out there. Or don't. It's up to you. But uh, we can be found on, you know, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. NastyLittleFlameGhost.com Sea Captains Only You know, it's the internet All There are places, places yeah. in, in there And hey, if you can't find us on the internet There is one more place you can look And that's deep inside your heart We'll be in there We always have been Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? <sighs> Man, good question Might be enjoying another one of those fine, nutty, lemony Manhattans that you've concocted. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's pretty good. And, uh, helping you regrout the floor in their hearts. Aw, that's very kind of you. Remember to use a sealant when you do your regrouting. Otherwise, you're just going to be regrouting again within a fortnight. Oh, yeah? (laughs) I'm Norm Abrams. I'm using some British words for some reason. (laughs) Nobody knows for sure why. But I took a lorry here. <laughs> oh, stop it. <laughs> okay. Trying to help, man. I appreciate that. Now huh? I got Norm Abrams in a lorry. What the heck? <laughs> There's worse times than Norm Abrams in a lorry. Norm Abrams, charming man. Oh, I'm sure. You a Norm Abrams guy or a Bob Vila guy? That's not a zero-sum game.
Well, okay, but but is there one of them that you prefer to the other, or you just like them as a team? Well, it's different stuff, but I mean, if I got a carpentry problem to solve, I'm going to go with the lead carpenter, Norm Abrams. Yeah, it's a good call. Thank you. What about you, you Team Vila and Team Abrams? No, I'm, no, I'm Norm Abrams all the way. All right. A yeah. cu- couple of Norms here. Yep. Lead Carpenter. What are you doing in people's hearts other than watching this old house? <laughs> I'm mainly watching this old house. Maybe I'll schedule myself another hangover day, but this time with hangover. <laughs> <laughs> and for that, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna watch the, this, uh, this past one. I watched the new Predator movie, Prey. Mm. Pretty darn good. I really enjoyed that. So maybe this next time, I'll watch Predator 2, which I've never actually seen. But it's got a Danny Glover and Gary Busey in it fighting the Predator. Yes. To Busey. Danny Glover seems like a pretty cool yeah, guy. Yeah, he's probably fine. Yeah. He had to put up with Bill Gibson. <laughs> he's probably a And Gary Busey. Oh my gosh. And a Predator. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do and you make a donation... You get access to a whole bunch of bonus stuff. There is the podcast What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. Another episode of that went up just about a week ago. So there's a bunch of that up there. There are also a whole bunch of video reviews of classic comic books. I've also been posting videos about the excavation of the comic collection I inherited recently. So... Bunch of fun stuff up there for you to check out. That is all there as a thank you for supporting the show and making it possible for us to keep doing the show. So, thank you for that. Corey, if people would like to support the show in a non-financial way, can that even be done? And if it can, how would you suggest that they go about doing that? You could send your thoughts to us at the mailing address that you mentioned. Sure. That's always nice. I mean, it's nice, yeah. I, I wouldn't say it necessarily supports the show, but it well, it makes us feel supported. It does. It, so in, in it, that sense, yes, it yeah, does. It morally supports the show. But I think what you're asking is, is how do we, I don't know, broaden our reach? Yeah, yeah, broaden our influence, uh, exert more power over the physical world with our mind muscles, really reach our influential tendrils all over the universe and grasp it tightly in our metaphoric, uh, well, they're still tendrils. Mind muscles. Mind muscles, yeah. And just like, you know, squeeze. Mm -hmm. Squeeze. Helping us squeeze those mind muscles will most easily be done by you by leaving a review for the show wherever you got the show, probably. There's a review button that you can mash. Yeah, mash that button. Yep. Just smash the fuck out of it. Use a hammer like in that uh, 1984 video for Macintoshes. Exactly. No, don't use a hammer. Use your finger. Well, metaphorical mind muscle hammer. Yeah, yeah. oh, yeah. Use your oh, metaphorical mind hammer. Yeah, get those tendrils. Gotta get those tendrils. Five stars. So you could just do that. And then uh, the other thing you could do is kind of the same thing as leaving a review, but to just do it with talking to people. Yeah, yeah. Like just leave an oral review with whoever you run into, like a jellyfish. Who also, you know, keeping the theme going, jellyfish got tendrils, probably, right? Is that what those things are called? I don't know. They got those little floaty bits. Mm-hmm. So you use your metaphoric floaty bits. You just drift around and <laughs> anything that you bump into, a jellyfish will try to eat. But anything that you, yeah, anything that you bump into, don't sting and try to eat. Instead, just uh-huh. uh, tell about our show. Oh, uh, and if somebody has told you about our show. 
Uh, don't try to get a friend to pee on you. That's just an urban legend. Doesn't actually help. That's for jellyfish stinging? Yeah, it's not, it's not a real thing. I thought that was when you, like, step on a sea urchin. Wait, you tried that? You peed on your foot and it didn't help? No, it's just a thing I, I read about. You, you read that it doesn't help? I read that it's, a re- it's not a real thing. Oh. It, it's a made-up thing that people think that if a jellyfish stings you, everybody should pee on you. But that was just <laughs> it's not a rumor that got made up by some nasty freaks. Oh, no. <laughs> they were like, oh, uh, you jellyfish sting? Oh, I know what to do. Nice. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's just that's a, an urban legend that uh, that people should pee on you. <laughs> and like, yeah, if that's what you're into, it's fine. But don't trick people. Don't trick people into peeing on you. If you want people to pee on you, just ask. So that's a way that you can help the show, I guess. Thanks, Hub. <laughs> no that... problem. Yep. Thanks for listening. Nice! Uh, I bet Gargoyle got super into Borat impressions. Oh, God. He definitely did, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Bye! Bye! And they knew it! What are you doing? I don't know. I can't do your whole little uh thing. So I'm I'm doing my own like uh, tiger breathing. What's what is tiger breathing? Well, it's like you pretend that you're a tiger that is trying to crush a melon in your enormous paws. I've never did you learn about that on the internet? I made it up in my brain. Okay. Tiger breathing. Yeah. I 101 think... with hum. <laughs> it seems like a thing. Seven. You ever see a tiger have trouble podcasting? No, but I've also never seen one try and squish a melon. Oh, they're elusive, that's why. Nature's perfect camouflage. Stripes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in the tall grass of where tigers live. Mm-hmm. All right, you ready? I don't know. Me neither. Let's find out. All right.